Please welcome up Andrew Dugan. So am I on now? All right, cool, I am. I just first of all want to say thank you for uh, having me here. I'd like to open up in prayer. Um, our Father, just uh, thank you for this time today to come before you in worship, and just thank you for all these people that are here, Lord. Please allow uh, my words to um, speak into their hearts and allow them to be your words, and uh, also allow the words of uh, David when he's up there teaching just um, edify you and bring glory to you. And we ask this all through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so... Um, I was born in Staten Island, New York. It's um, one of the five boroughs of New York. And um, I had two older sisters from a different father who basically left the house really early on. And then I had an older brother and a younger sister. So it was basically us three growing up. And I was the middle child. Uh, my older brother um, was my dad's favorite. It was his first son. And he loved him, got everything he could ever want. And my little sister was daddy's little girl who also got everything. And then I was just kind of there. Um, so it was an atheist household. My dad was atheist. He made my mom leave the Catholic Church when they got married. And we never had God in our home. We never spoke about God. Um, the only thing that was ever said, you know, my dad would be like, if I ever met God, I'd spit in his face. And from a young age, I just felt this um, emptiness inside. And um, when I was born, I was born premature, and I had um, a hormone growth disorder. So I was a lot smaller than everyone. I remember at the age of 12, they took my bone age, and I still had the body mass of a six-year-old. So um, all throughout elementary school, I get teased for being small, and I had no friends. Um, when third grade came up, it was a very rough year for me. In the beginning of the year, my school teacher died, and school meant a lot to me. It was getting out of the home. It was getting away from all the pain that I had back at home. Um, my father also used to abuse me. I kind of forgot to mention that. So when I went to school, it was like, good, this isn't behind me, the kids might tease me, but the teacher loves me. And um, she passed away, and it was you know, very detrimental on me. And then a few months later, we packed up our stuff and moved to um, Long Island, a suburb of New York City. And as soon as getting into school, the kids would tease me. I had a Brooklyn accent that was very heavy. I spoke different than everyone. And coming from the city, you know, from Staten Island, being very ghetto, you know, we dressed kind of like hip-hoppy when all the kids in Long Island were dressing nice, and I had no friends, none. And at about the age of eight or nine years old, I started cutting myself. It's the only way I feel um, I was able to get a release, and no one knew. You know, I cut myself on my arms and going to school, the blood stains down my shirts, my parents didn't know, my teachers didn't know. I was just ignored the entire time, and just this burden in my chest just kept getting worse and worse, and all I wanted was death. I mean, even before I knew what suicidal tendencies were, I had them. And um, just felt I had nowhere to go. So went through middle school, continued to be teased and everything. And then the uh, summer going into high school, I got my first girlfriend. And she was a punk rocker. And I instantly was turned on to the whole punk rock scene. Pain was considered cool. If you cut yourself, there was no shame in it. And it just had all that angst that I wanted to get out was there. And I finally found a community where I could be a horrible mess and people accepted it. So I ran with that for years, um, hanging out in Thompson Square Park in Manhattan with all the squatters and you know, being part of the concerts that turned into riots and running from the police and that whole deal. And then um, you know, some friends started turning me on to doing drugs. And um, when I was 14 years old, um, 
I did this drug called DPT, which was a research chemical. No one knew anything about it. It was like fresh off the um, chem labs in Pakistan. And um, one day I just did too much. No one knew what a dosage was. Um, we're finding out years later a dosage is about 10 milligrams, and that day I did 500. And um, I woke up three days later after being in a coma in the hospital ICU. Um, no recollection of what happened at all. Um, they put me in a mental hospital for it, thinking it was an overdose, where it was just, you know, I was partying too hard. And, um, you know, from then on, my drug use just escalated. Um, you know, lots of psychedelics and just that pain kept growing, but it wasn't being expressed in anger anymore. You know, when I was all into punk rock, it was so much anger. And I skipped over the anger by that point in my life, and it went to straight depression and sadness. And um, started hanging out with the hippies, because the only way at that point was either drugs, self-mutilation, um, or sex. And I got into the hippie community because of the free sex, and that really brought me down a bad path. Um, just different girlfriends every week, and trying to fill that void in my life with anything I could, and it was just eating me alive. Um, when I was 15, um, I got hit by a car. I was walking across the street. Um, I had the light, and the guy was going 70, and he tried turning. He saw me last minute and tried turning, and the back of his car kind of tail whipped around and hit me, and I was 400 feet from point of impact. There is no reason I should be alive today. Um, skid across the road, I wasn't wearing a shirt, I had road rash all over my back, uh, tore every muscle in my left leg, uh, fractured my tibia, hairline, hairline fraction of my tibia, shattered my patella, and destroyed some of my spinal cord. My, I'm actually an inch and a half shorter than I was when I got hit by a car because of the twisting on my spine. And the only thing I thought I had going for me at that point in my life was I was a track star. I could run, and at that point, I was like, that's it, my future is completely done. The only thing I had was running, and now I can't run. So uh, I continued, finished high school, and um, having no reason to really live, cocaine kind of took over my life. And I was doing lots of cocaine and um, acid, and it was just messing with me emotionally. I was going in and out of mental hospitals. Until one um, night, it was about two in the morning, and I just couldn't. I couldn't take the pain anymore. Having no reason to live, not that many friends, I felt like my family hated me. I um, did an eight ball of coke, slit my wrist really bad, post uh, the suicide note on, um, I think it was MySpace at the time, it was before Facebook. And uh, I tied a noose, walked over to the top of my staircase and tied the rope around the staircase and jumped down. And the last thing I can remember was just my vision from all around turning black as it centered in. And um, the Lord definitely intervened right there. Um, apparently, my little sister's dog, I was out cold, but my little sister's dog started yapping, which he was a Jack Russell. He does that anyway. Usually, we don't pay any mind to it. But my mom, for this time, decided I'm going to wake up and see what's going on. And she found me unconscious, blue, a pile of blood underneath my body. And, um, you know, they called, they cut me down and called the paramedics. And the paramedics said, 45 seconds, a minute later, and Andrew would have been dead. 
Um, was put in the ICU for a few weeks. Um, had a little cyst in my neck, so I couldn't like move that much. And that pain just kept growing. Things like this would happen over and over again. My life, my goal was death. And um, I didn't think I'd live as long as I have. Yesterday was my 26th birthday, and the fact of the matter I'm walking here today is a miracle from God. So a few more years go by, and I'm 21. And things were going all right. And I was hiking with my little sister through Montauk, which is the tip of Long Island, as far as you can get on Long Island. And we get around, there's this big bluff, and then you just have the beach underneath it, and you could see the horizon. And we got to the bluff, and it was an overcast day. And all of a sudden, the sky opened up. And both me and my sister got this amazing feeling of euphoria. And I've done every drug in the book, and there is nothing that has reached this feeling before in my life. And we both look at each other and go, Jesus is real. No, we said God is real. Jesus has something to do with it. And I've never been preached the gospel before. I mean, the whole idea of God even existing was completely foreign for me. And Jesus? I knew nothing about Jesus. But for some reason, I knew Jesus was God right then and there. And the word teaches that, you know, Jesus goes out and he found, finds the one sheep out of the 99. He calls it by name. And I now recognize now that he'd call me by name. I wasn't looking for Jesus but he wanted me. But that day I accepted Jesus as my savior. I didn't accept him in my heart as the Lord yet. I continued on a rough path for another two hard years and they were some of the hardest years of my life. I buried, in that two years, I buried my entire crew growing up, the best friends I had. I'm the only one of them that's still alive today. The oldest one lived to 23 years old. And um, I continued on that rocky path, started going to raves and you know, I would go to a rave on a Saturday night and eat a ton of acid and, and ecstasy, and I'd show up at church the next morning still tripping and rolling, and I'd leave church feeling awful with a horrible conviction in my heart. Like, what am I doing with my life? I claim to be righteous. I, I claim to be a child of God, and look what I'm doing. I have girls crying every weekend because of the things I do. I have my family crying over me. And the Lord just kept breaking down my life. He knew I needed to be broken. And um, he allowed everything to continue to downfall until the point that I was living with my girlfriend, and then we broke up, and I was homeless. And um, a man from my church told me, you know, I know this Christian commune up in New Hampshire. They can get your life back on track. You just need to step away from the drugs and the people that you're around. So. I went up to the commune. I really didn't think anything was going to change. I thought I was going to go up there. I had this mindset, either this is going to save me, or I'm going to do this, get out and be fine, or I'm going to get out and shoot myself in the head. Those, that was it. This was my last chance that I was giving myself to get it. And that's where I started reading the word. And it's true when they said the word changes your life, that there is comfort in it and there is power in it. I started seeing areas of my life just change dramatically. The depression and the suicide, it's gone. I mean, I still get sad here and there, but it's nothing like it was. You know, I have hope now, something I've never had before. So, you know, I did this commune and I got out and I couldn't hang out with my friends anymore. Like, it's just everything they were involved in, you know, going to festivals and this and that. You know, I'd go to a festival and have a good time, but it wasn't the same. I knew there was something missing in my life. And, um, I went to a festival one night. My friend asked me to, to vend with him. He works at festivals. So I went, and um, it was kind of raining, and it was the first year of it, and there wasn't a lot of people. 
I went out in the woods and I sat down and I prayed. And I prayed for a long time. And as, when I got up from the prayer, I just heard on the heart, go to Cosa Mesa. I'm a New York boy. I don't know anything about California. You know, I, I've been to San Francisco once before. I didn't know anyone in Orange County or LA. And um, I get home from the festival, and I, it's the next week, and it's Saturday night, and I still keep getting this feeling in my heart, go to Costa Mesa, go to Costa Mesa. And I sit down in prayer, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know if this is from me or if it's from you. I'm a young Christian. Just give me a sign to let me know what it is. Well, the next day, I went into church, and after service, this guy came up to me and said, hi, I'm Joshua. I'm visiting from LA. Would you like to show me New York City? And I go, sure. I think I'm going to spend three, four hours with this guy in the city. 16 hours later, I get home, straight fellowship. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know the, the Bible school down there. And I know school and ministry. And I know people down there. I could help you get work. And it was like, Lord, this is the sign. I um, called the school. And it, you had to go through all this work to do it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not getting in. And then I called Carl, the guy that runs the school, and I go, my pastor, Pastor Kevin Hennessy, suggested I go here. And he goes, stop filling out the paperwork you're in. I shouldn't have gotten into the school of ministry. I did not have the credentials that I needed. I did not have the money to get out there. I moved out here with $600 in my bank account knowing one person, nowhere to live, no job. I blindly came out here, and the Lord has provided every minute of the way. There hasn't been a day where there hasn't been a roof over my head or at least two meals in my stomach. And, you know, I tell the outside world, how could you move somewhere with $600 in your pocket? You can't. You cannot. But the Lord, he can make it work. And that's the story of my life, really, is that I couldn't do it, but the Lord could. And he has transformed me from a sinful, self-destroying person to... He's bringing me around the world. I mean, he brought me to Haiti to do missions work. Um, he's got me involved in children's ministry. And I have found happiness and peace in the Lord that I couldn't find for anything in this world. And I praise him for that and thank him for this opportunity to come up here and share my word. And I hope um, this touched your hearts. Thank you. One minute. So I asked Andrew, kind of short notice, I said, hey, um, could you come share your story uh, tonight at, or at uh, the Sunday night at church? And uh, he said something really awesome to me. Can, can you share that with him? Do you remember? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> so when I was asked to share here, it reminded me of the book of Acts in chapters 25, 26, and 27. Throughout those chapters, Paul has given his testimony three times. And at the end of it, he's in front of Agrippa, and it is a public trial. And uh, Paul gives his testimony again and gives the gospel again. And Agrippa says to him, you have almost convinced me to become a Christian. And Paul responded, my hope is that I have almost convinced everyone to become a Christian. Because Paul saw it is not our job to make someone a Christian. It is our job to tell our testimony and to plant the seed. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And all we could do is tell the truth, tell what the Lord's done in our lives. And that's out of our hands from that point on. So thanks for your faithfulness with that. Appreciate that, brother. Man, it's good to see God's word applied in our lives. And don't forget, you have a testimony. You have a story 
that God has allowed to happen in your life. And so I want to encourage you, make up a two-minute version of it, two minute, or even a one-minute version, one that you could share on an elevator ride to the fourth floor. That's it. Just make up a short version of it and be ready to share it because as soon as you're ready, I promise you, God will give you opportunity. So with that said, we're in 1 John chapter 5, and we've got three sermons left in 1 John. So we're coming to the close of this wonderful little letter to the church in Ephesus from, from their pastor, the Apostle John. And I hope by now you've been starting to get the theme of this letter because we keep repeating it almost every week. It's either, first of all, you can know that you're in Christ by obeying God and loving your brother. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. But we're going to be talking about being a triumphant child of God. And that's why Andrew's testimony is so perfect for tonight. Actually, everybody's story is, is that story. But just how God takes someone who's dead, dead in their sins, dead physically, whatever it is, and he transforms them into a triumphant child. Andrew's in school of ministry on his way to becoming a pastor. And so we're, we're going to keep praying for him. But let's get into the word now. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And Lord God, we just ask for now that you'd open up your word to us. Help, it, to help apply it to our minds and to our hearts, Lord, and into action, God. Lord, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, and honoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I get into my official introduction, I would like to say something about the Bible. You know, it'd be great in this generation if we could make a movie that would replace the Bible, but it'll never happen. The fact is, is anyone who's a Christian, anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to face it. You're a people of a book. And you've got to learn to become literate with that book. And I don't mean literate in the fact that you can just read. I mean that you learn how to understand it, to read it, to start letting the Holy Spirit apply it in your life, and to go live it out. That's what, essentially what God did with Andrew as he started to read the Word. God started to teach him how to apply it and started changing his life with that Word, that living and active Word. And I want to encourage you all. That's what we're trying to do here on Sunday nights. That's why we teach through a book of the Bible. We want to teach you how to become biblically literate. Now, some of you are more mature and you are biblically literate. You're eating meat and potatoes. You know how to feed yourself. But others of you are children, babies, needing to be nursed in a sense. And I want to just encourage you to start practicing these spiritual disciplines. When you go home during the week, read, open up the Word of God and start reading it. No TV show, no radio program will ever replace 
you reading the Word of God for yourself. You may say, well, I don't understand it. I'm not sure where to start. Well, let me just tell you this. If you're not sure where to start, why don't you start in the book of John? Just start reading through the book of John, the Gospel of John. You read through the Gospel of John, or you can, whatever we're reading at the time, just start reading through that book. Jump onto the living room study. Start reading a chapter a day, and let God start speaking to you. Now, <laughs> I digress. Let's get into the message. From what I could gather this week as I started looking at world conquerors, I, I think there's approximately about 105 people, conquerors, throughout history that have taken on the term great. You know, like uh, Charlemagne the Great, Chopra the Great, he was an Indian great. Uh, there's lots of Chinese emperors, great Cyrus the Great, the Persian conqueror. And there's about 105 of them throughout history that have taken on this name, the Great. And uh, there was no Dave the Great. <laughs> it's not in there. There's no Jesus the Great. There's just all these guys who were conquerors. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them, got the term the Great by conquering armies and a lot of bloodshed. A lot of them killing off their families, doing all sorts of terrible, atrocious things. And then they earned themselves the name the Great. Funny how that all these great conquerors could never conquer death. Death came for them. When you think of Alexander the Great, he didn't even make it to 30. I don't think he did. He died so young. He's a great conqueror. He did a lot, but he died. He couldn't conquer the grave. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, he so flipped the mindset of what God calls great in his kingdom. Great in God's kingdom is the servant, the lowly one. And rightfully so. Think about the master in God's kingdom, Jesus Christ. He came, comes to earth and humbles himself in the form of a servant. He serves. God raises from the dead. He sits down at the right hand of God. God exalts him to that place of authority. So to be great in God's kingdom, we've got to become humble, the servant of all. And here in 1 John today, as we look at this chapter, the word conquer comes up again, affirming that you and I in Jesus Christ are conquerors. We are victors. The question is, victors of what? So starting out with verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Well, there's a common thing in this chapter, in this passage, about the triumphant ones, triumphant children of God share. And the first one is, the triumphant child believes in Jesus. If you want to be a conqueror, victorious over this world, a triumphant in God's kingdom, it starts with belief in Jesus Christ. Now, this passage, this verse here is kind of a two-sided verse. And I'm going to take the, the second half of the verse first, and that's, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The child of God loves his siblings. And this carries on from the end of chapter 4. Remember last week, God gave us a command through the Apostle John. It says, this is the command. 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And there's a natural question that comes with that. Once you finish it is, well, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, then who is my brother? Who is my sibling? And so John answers it, who's ever been born of God? That's the child of God. Whoever has believed in Jesus Christ is born of God. That's who your brother is. That's who your siblings are. Well, can we get a little more clarification here? I don't want to accidentally spin all the love on the wrong person. You know, <laughs> I would hate for all the sacrificing gifts to go to the, the, the wrong person. I want to make sure that, well, you know, so-and-so treats me really well. So-and-so is really nice at church. Oh, they, they're so godly. Maybe th that's the one you really mean. Not the person who's grumpy all the time. Not the person who's <laughs> negative Nelly. Uh, not the person who's always critical. Not the person who's a liar. Not the carnal person. No, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. That's your brother. That's the one you're to love. The unlovely ones. The ones that you don't like. The ones that you want to stay away from. The ones when they come into church, you're like, let's walk over here quick. <laughs> Hide. Get into the pews. They're the ones we're called to love. And they're the hardest ones sometimes. But you know what? Jesus loved us. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how much God's love is for us. And that's that response that we have. It's funny how so much in the Gospels, and especially in the book of uh, the, the writings of John, he refers to us as children. I love that idea because when I think about my children and when I'm raising my children, you know, they'll do something and you're like, why did you do that? And, and I, when you start to think about as a parent the things you say to your kids, we say some really dumb stuff to our kids. Like they know why they did it. You know, most of the time they don't. Today I was working on my sermon here at church and I get a call from my wife. Hey, honey, the kids locked themselves out of their bedroom. Can you come figure out how to get the, because when we moved into this house, it's got, every room had a separate door lock and there's still one door left to, to change. And so I had to like run home. And as much as on the way home, I'm thinking, man, I got to ask them, why would they do that? Why would they lock the door? Why would they do that? I realize like, it doesn't even matter. The best thing for me to do is show them, next time, don't lock this door, but I need to change it. I'm sorry I haven't changed it yet. <laughs> so I had to actually bust off the little molding and then open up the door and like, voila, and then race back to church. But our kids do things all the time that we were so prone to go, why, why, why? Or get upset at them before they even had the chance or we've even seen it through their eyes. Little children, they lie. Why did you lie? Well, duh. They're trying to get out of trouble. It's not right that they lied. But let's be obvious about this. They didn't want to get in trouble. So what are we to do as parents? Well, instruct a child in the way that they should go. That's what we're supposed to do, instruct. That's what God does with us, like little children. I don't think God's ever asked me, why did you do that, idiot? He's never done that to me. Because honestly, he, God already knows, first of all, I got the sin nature, <laughs> you know. But he doesn't treat me that way. In the same way, we should love our siblings. We shouldn't go, well, they should know better. The fact is, they don't. Especially if no one's taking the time to confront or show them the scriptures. You yourselves should be training yourselves in using the word of God to Two, discipline your brothers and sisters to love them.
And by the way, you don't ever correct, correct when you're angry at your siblings, do you? No, you forgive them. You search your heart first. You let God work on you. Then you prepare yourself with scriptures, and then you go confront. That's the biblical way of doing it. Otherwise, you'll end up going, well, you should know better by now, when that's just not the case. The second side of this verse, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So John defines who we're supposed to love, but there's a, another side to it, and that's the fact that you can know that you're born again. You, yourself, you can know, you can have assurance that you are born of God. That term born again for for those who aren't Christians, they wonder, what does that mean? I, I don't understand it totally. All it means is that you have decided, you believe in Jesus Christ. You've put your trust in him. That's the word born again. And we can know it. It's not something we have to hope for. It's not something like, I, I, gee, I, I, I hope my good outweighs my bad. No way. It's about Jesus Christ. He did it for us. Here John says that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, let me just talk for a minute about this because he says believing in that Jesus is the Christ and later on he'll talk about believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think that it is important to recognize there's an identity issue here that we have to identify Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He is the only chosen instrument for your salvation and my salvation. There are no other methods, no other ways. There is nothing else you can do to earn salvation. It is only by the work of God's anointed one, Jesus. So that's why we believe in Jesus Christ. He's the anointed one. So we have to recognize that I believe, the Jesus I believe in is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the, the provision that God gave for me for my sin. That's who we believe in. And believe is a lot more than hoping real hard. Believe is actually accompanied with action. Believe is accompanied by repentance, recognizing your unworthiness, your spiritual depravity. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives what's called the Beatitudes. And the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. That idea that happy are you when you've recognized your spiritual bankruptcy, that you've got no chips in your pockets to pay the debt. There's nothing there. You yourself are inadequate. There's nothing you can do, but you can trust in the one who can do something, Jesus Christ. And so happy is that person because they will inherit the kingdom of God. So we can know that we've been born of God and it comes by believing, trusting in God, repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus Christ. If you decided to trust in Jesus and follow him, you're born again, you are a triumphant child of God, a victor. A triumphant child obeys God's commands. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep command his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Love for God is not an expression, but action. 
See, in our culture, we've boiled down the meaning of love to be feelings or expressions. Maybe a card with a heart on it. That means I love you. That doesn't mean I love you. My, my action means I love you. The fact that I made you a card shows some action of love. But the problem today in our culture is love is all about self-centered, which we, we mentioned this last week. And we, we gauge love by how we feel. And then when we say, oh yeah, I love God. But we really don't know what that means to love God because we base love on us and how God makes us feel, not on how I please God how I'm obedient to God. And so John here tells us that when we obey God's commandments, we're loving God and loving our siblings, our brothers, our sisters. So he kind of flips it around, says, well, here's the deal. Here's the core of what it means to love God. Obey him. If you obey him, you're going to just love your brothers and sisters. You're going to love him. That's what it is. So in a sense, what we see about the laws of God is they're not burdensome, and we'll talk about this in just a minute. They're not, they're not chains put on us like, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That's how I thought about God's laws before I became a Christian. I thought it was a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, and some were more questionable because they would definitely hinder some of my fun. So those ones could be kind of like, eh, well, maybe he didn't really mean don't do that. And I would look at God's laws as do's and don'ts. The amazing thing is when I became a child of God, I didn't see them as do's and don'ts. I started seeing them as, as love. His, his don'ts were, I love you. This is going to hurt you. His don'ts were, his do's were, I love you. That's why you should do this. Because this is good. It's pleasing to me. And you're going to, the, the, the outcome of you pleasing me is going to be joy. So when we start to see God's commands, we realize that these are not burdens put on us. You know, a few years ago, uh, well, I guess it'd probably be now a little more than a few years ago. But when I was a kid, there were no like seatbelt laws or, or like child seats or car seats or anything like that. We had this giant brown station wagon and it was just kind of like, oh, just get in the back, you know, and like we're all in the back. Dad takes a sharp corner, you know, we hit the side of the car or whatever. And I remember we got in a couple car accidents with that brown tank and we were all okay. I think there was no lasting permanent damage. I don't know. <laughs> My wife may disagree. But uh, there were no laws about that. Eventually, laws came out prohibiting children from riding in the front seat, prohibiting children from riding without seat belts. And eventually, it was laws about being in certain child-safe seats. And these laws had to do with accidents. There were accidents happening, and kids were dying. Kids were being maimed in them. And someone figured out, hey, you know, if, if they sit in this seat... It's going to save their life. Now, I don't think the parents' love was ever questioned. Parents' love for a child is beautiful. Parents love their kids. It wasn't about that. They felt great about loving their kids. But there were laws that needed to be put in place to ensure the safety of their children. The same is true for our love and devotion for God and other people. Feelings are not enough. 
We need laws and boundaries in the form of commands to help us love God and each other. And so God has given us these laws and commands. Keeping God's commands is not a dreadful chore, but a joy-filled treasure. That's really what it comes down to. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. Oh, by the way, before I, let me set this verse up for you. Jesus had just finished cursing the cities uh, on, the, on the plane there. He cursed them because they didn't recognize him as Messiah. They had rejected him. In fact, more so than that, they kept saying, well, we want a sign, we want a sign, or do this, do that. And we want a sign just means, it, it just basically means, oh, prove yourself to us because we don't believe you. That's, that's really what it means in the Gospels. And so he just finished cursing. By the way, he had been giving signs, just they weren't willing to see them. He finishes cursing them, uh, these cities, and, and he tells them, you know, I'd long to gather you together. I, I, I long to love you. I long to save you. But you won't have it. Then he says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ's burden is light. When we take upon his yoke and we say, Lord, I want to learn from you. I want to learn the purpose of life, how to live life, how, how, to, how to be a good parent, how to be a good husband, how to be a good boyfriend or girlfriend, how to be a servant of you, God. I want to learn from you. When we take Christ's yoke upon us, we find that his burden is easy and his, his, the, 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 the labor is not, it's not like it was before. See, before we become Christian, it's like, oh, I gotta do this. Everything's a terrible chore. You know, it's interesting because uh, when I look back at relationships and, and things, I can't say that I ever really regret putting effort in, <clears throat> into relationships uh, or the effort it takes. I, I don't ever, I've never regretted driving my kids around in the morning or getting them to school on time. I've never regretted the things, uh, doing some things for my wife that she's asked me to do. What I have regretted is the, the time not spent, the, not doing the things, or, oh, I wish I would have put more time into this, or I wish I would have done that. But what I found is when I put the time in, when I put the effort in, I, I receive better relationships. I, I grow. My family grows from the effort put in, the time put in, the, the, the labor that I put in. When we put in the labor of love, when we start to love God the way we're supposed to love, we're going to find that you won't regret it at all. In fact, you're going to start to mirror Christ because you're learning from him. You've yoked yourself up, and yoked not being the term of lifting a bunch of weights like it is today, but yoked being the idea of hooking yourself up to, to a plow with another oxen, but this one's Jesus Christ, not an ox. That got confusing there. You're hooking yourself up to Christ and saying, teach me how to do this. How do I deal with this problem? How do I deal with my bitterness against this person? 
How do I deal with the way I worship you? How do I deal with lying? How do I deal with my anger? How do I deal with the various aspects of my life? His burden is not heavy. If we yoke ourselves to the Lord, we're going to find that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. The triumphant child knows that they are victorious. This is a really important idea. Verse 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 4 and 5. It is important for you, child of God, to know that you are triumphant. That word overcome, we've already seen it before in 1 John. We're seeing it again. That The word is nikao, and it, it means victor, overcome. You know, the word uh, Nike comes from that, victory. The, the Nike is the noun version of the verb. And so it, it just victory, uh, overcomer, uh, one who is, has, has uh, been victorious in a struggle. Every child of God is triumphant over this world. Every single child of God. You may not feel it. You may wonder, well, wait a minute. Is that just like something you're saying, but it's not really real? It's just kind of an illusion? No, no. Let me explain to you how you're triumphant over God. First of all, we access this victory by faith. That's the key thing there. See, in verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We access this victory through our faith in Jesus Christ. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. Remember, faith is not hoping real hard. Faith is obedience and trust. You're trusting in Jesus and you say, well, Lord, because you said it, I'll do it. That's the obedience part. The trust is, yes, I believe you're Lord. The obedience part is, I'll do it. Today, Andy said that there was a point in time which he acknowledged God with his lips, but he hadn't yet made him Lord over his life. That's the second part of that faith. Oh, I can say, yeah, I, I believe you're real, God, but now I need to actually truly believe. I need to put it into action. So we've overcome. The victory is accessed by faith. Think about this for a moment. As you, oh, sorry, Jesus Christ said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, it fits naturally that if Jesus Christ, our Savior, has overcome, then we too, because God is making us like him, are overcomers. Because we're in him, we're now children of God, we're no longer a child of the world. We now are in Christ, and he has made us overcomers because he has overcome. Well, think about this for a minute. In the present, how have we overcome? Well, we've been given the Holy Spirit, first of all. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have been given his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been given to lead you into truth. You've been given truth. So you can discern things that please God versus things that are of the evil one. You can discern how your actions should be. You can open up the word and say, you know what? I flew off the handle that moment. That was right. It wasn't right. There was no excuse. I need to go back and ask for forgiveness. We can, see, we, we can say that, you know what? I'm not going to lie anymore. I've been a liar all my life, and now it's time to change. Now it's time for me to follow Christ. 
And when the Holy Spirit starts to reveal these things in you, maybe you're sitting in here tonight and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to you, showing you sin. Well, don't go back out there and do it. Deal with the sin. Recognize that when God says something is sinful or against him and he reveals that truth to you, it's time to change. It's time to turn from it so that you can overcome it, so that you can be victorious over that area of your, or aspect of your life and trust in him. I have said these things that in me you may have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. There's a second aspect to being an overcomer, a victorious child of God, triumphant child of God, and that's in the future. Listen, I, I just pulled these verses out of the book of Revelation because they all have to do with the one who conquers or the one who overcomes. John loves this word. He loves telling the child of God that you've overcome. And in, in, those, in the, the letters to the seven churches, listen to what it says about, about those who overcome. First, they're going to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The, the one who overcomes is going to have life. They're not going to be destined to damnation or death, but they're going to have life and have it eternal. Not only life, but they're going to have a resurrected life, one like Christ. The overcomer is going to be not hurt by the second death. That means that those who are in Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in him, will not face judgment. You and I may, may die in this life. We may pass on to the next. And, but when it comes time for the judgment, no judgment for you because Jesus Christ has already paid the price. You're an overcomer. The overcomer will be given some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'll give you some of the hidden manna. You know, I wonder about this verse. I'm not really sure. I wonder if it's referring to partaking in Jesus Christ. I tend to think it is because Jesus Christ obviously is the bread of life. He stood up there and says, I am the bread of life. So, those who are overcomers, they partake in Jesus Christ. The white stone with the new name, I'm really not sure about this. I, I, the only thing I can think of is that this, this new name is, has to do with our new self, being born again in Christ. But this, this, this passage is a little bit strange. The overcomer is the one to him, I will give authority over the nations. To the one who conquers in Jesus Christ, you will have authority You'll rule with him. What? That's kind of weird. I didn't do anything. No, but you, you, you trusted in Jesus. That's, you, you trusted the one who did do something, and he'll give you authority to rule. The overcomer will be clothed in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my, before my father and before his angels. So he takes off your dirty garments, your sinfulness, and he puts on that white robe, that white garment. And then he says, this one's mine. I paid the price. My blood was shed for this one. His name is in the book of life. That's the overcomer. The conqueror, the triumphant one. Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What is a pillar? A pillar is a fixed point in a building. It's not going away. Can you imagine if you tried to cut down one of these pillars? The building would, would collapse at that point. The pillars are necessary. They're important. And they're fixed. 
Jesus Christ will make the triumphant child a fixed pillar in the temple of God. He, he has assurance of being with the Lord. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 3.21. The overcomer, Christ will grant you to sit down with him on his throne. That's an awesome idea, especially considering how much work and effort we put into this whole overcoming thing. We watched Christ die on a cross for, for our sins. We said, Lord, I'm unworthy. Lord, I'm not good enough. I need you in my life. And now he's gonna take me and let me sit on his throne with him? All the blessings that God gives to us through, through the work that he did. There's a question you need to ask yourself, though. Who will you depend on? Yourself? Think about that for a moment. Are you trusting in yourself? Are you the Lord of your life? Do you live out your life just saying, what does Dave Johnson feel like doing? What do I feel makes me happy right now? Am I trusting in myself? Because all I know is myself is not good enough. Myself cannot save me. It is only Jesus Christ. See that question that John ends with there in in verse, or a question that he poses in verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. There's only one Jesus. There's many people who try to say they have a Jesus or they'll talk about Jesus in certain terms, but there's only one son of God. There's only one Christ. Only one anointed one. The question is, will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Or are you gonna continue trusting in yourself? Are you gonna trust in a boyfriend? A fiance, a husband, a wife, a job. All I know about all those things, like the conquerors, they will fade away. All those conquerors, those 105 conquerors in history who are just in a history book now. They couldn't conquer the grave. Jesus Christ can. I want to encourage you tonight, if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, to start it up tonight. To say, I want to believe in you. I'm ready to trust in you. I'm ready to repent of my sin. Maybe you've heard this message before. Maybe you've heard the gospel a hundred times before. But listen, if tonight's the night, you turn from your sin. You say, Jesus, I'm ready to trust in you. You know, you may have hard decisions to make when you leave this room. You may have to tell a girlfriend or a boyfriend, hey, we got to stop sleeping together. I'm now a Christian. You may have to say no to a drug dealer. You may have to say, oh, we're not doing this anymore in our household. There may be tough decisions. You may even come out of a job that you know is an ungodly work environment or ungodly work, and you've got to say, you know what? I need to, I need to move into a different, different line of work. I have a friend who next week he'll be sharing. He was a major part of the dot-com porn industry. And he made tons of money off of it. He's going to be sharing next week about how God got a hold of him and changed his life. But there are things that we will have to give up because our love for God is so. So if you're ready to make that decision, I want you to pray a prayer. Bow with me, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Jesus, come into my life, I need you. Lord, I've been living a lie. Forgive me of my sin. I'm ready to turn from it and to believe and trust in you. I need you as my savior.
Lord God, we thank you so much for this time that we have together. We thank you for your word. Lord, every night that you give us chances to hear your gospel, Lord, how patient you are with us, how good you are to us in changing our lives, making us look more and more like you. Praise you for being victorious, Lord. Praise you, God. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.